You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. Uh, This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Jeremy Udley, who uh, teaches at Stanford's famous D School, also the uh, engineering school, and is the co-author of a new book called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks, Greg. Nice to be here. Well, look, there's so much to talk about. I think every business person today is looking for some kind of magic bullet, right? Some kind of panacea that's going to keep them relevant, right? And uh, keep them from being Amazonified or crushed by innovators. And I think, you know, you offer up something which, well, you know, if not a panacea, might be something that they need to take seriously. And it's this idea of idea flow and you call it a metric. And what's interesting about this metric is that it's kind of an input metric instead of an output metric in Mm. a way, Mm. right? Like normally we think about KPIs that are, I guess, not leading indicators, but lagging indicators, right? Like, you know, what have you done and so forth. And you're saying that, you know, maybe we need to focus more on this leading indicator, which you call idea flow, right? And so I'm wondering, like, why, first of all, should we be thinking about an indicator as fuzzy as this? And is there evidence to suggest that, we'll have to define the metric, of course, but is there evidence to suggest that this metric really does predict the metrics that business people are normally focused on, like profitability and sales and all the rest of that? Right. Well, I mean, there's a lot of questions there. So I would say, I don't know where exactly to start, but as a recovering MBA myself and as a recovering perfectionist, spreadsheet junkie, et cetera, and as a student of the history of innovation, I kind of conceive of my role at the D School as being a front row student in the world's coolest classroom. You know, I get to work with entrepreneurs and executives and study the greats. And one of the things that few people realize is the extent to which input matters. I mean, you talk about an input metric. Very few people appreciate, this is going to be an obvious statement as soon as I say it, but very few people are have operationalized it. The inputs to your thinking affect the outcomes of your thinking, right? And designers, you know, my wife's actually a fashion designer. I taught with a hip hop, a Grammy award-winning hip hop artist, right? And what you know, if you hang out with creative people, as I have the privilege of doing is they are incredibly focused on their inputs. They call it inspiration. And immediately for a lot of MBA types, that kind of triggers this panicked or rather dismissive attitude of a poster on a corporate hallway that says like teamwork and it shows a bunch of people skydiving, right? And we go, that's not inspiration, but that's not what I mean by inspiration. What I mean by inspiration is the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input and every one of those words matters, but being disciplined in your pursuit of input is the way to solve problems. When you think about problem solving as the big problem, we believe that idea flow can solve the problem of solving problems for good because you realize it's actually about how you think about the problem that matters. And, you know, when Steve Jobs was frustrated with the original design of the MacBook, there's a reason that he got up and went to Macy's. You know what it was? He needed input. He didn't know what the answer was. He just knew he didn't have it, right? And he's haunting the aisles of Macy's before he stumbles across, of all things, a Cuisinart food processor. And he picks it up and he buys it and he takes it back to the Apple offices and he says, it should look like this. 
And if you think about it for the for a burgeoning computer design team, personal computer design team, for them to have a food mixer, one, you go, what does that have to do with design? And two, you realize it has everything to do with it. But I love that Jobsian tactic of seeking inspiration when he's stuck. And I hear that with hip hop artists. I hear it with fashion designers. And I what I know is the most innovative individuals have this instinct to go and seek input that drives fresh thinking when they're stuck. Yeah, but I think a lot of business people would say, all right, great. Yeah, fine. I need creativity. I need ideas and so forth. And we're going to have a division of labor, right? We're going to have the folks who are doing the, the innovating stuff, you know, the design folks, the hip hop artists and so forth. And then the, the grownups are going to do the, the execution bit, right? You know, we're, we're the ones that are going to go out there and put these ideas into practice. I mean, does it make sense in today's world to, to think in terms of that division of labor? I mean, to kind of double down on that idea, you know, when people talk about creativity, they talk about it in a very, you know, loosey goosey way and not in sort of a scientific way. One of the things that, that I have an exercise, I have a lot of people do in my programs is I have them say, let's take a look at your company and imagine that it's not in the business of finance. It's not in the business of manufacturing automobiles, whatever. It's in the business of manufacturing ideas and manufacturing innovations. And then can you apply the same principles of operations research and, you know, efficiency to this process of idea generation? And, and to some business people, that just seems like mixing oil and water, right? The whole idea of applying a systematic approach to idea generation, that seems like caging the, the ball of mercury, so to speak. Yeah, I think the division is patently absurd. I would say this false dichotomy. When you think of, you know, I hear a lot of leaders come to the D school, come to Stanford and they go, I want you to help me bring the creativity out of my team. And I go, okay, well, let's, definitions matter. What do you mean by creativity? And what they don't realize they don't mean is artistry, but the mm -hmm. default definition of creativity is artistry. And I'm here to tell you, there's some teams you can't draw artistry out of, right? But that's not what matters, right? That's not what we mean by creativity. Creativity is the art of solving problems and generating novel solutions to problems. And when you think about it like that, lawyers need creativity every bit as much as accountants do, every bit as much as HR departments do, right? And my favorite definition, actually, or I've got a handful of favorite definitions, but one of my favorite definitions of creativity comes from a seventh grader in Ohio who said, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And that's actually a phenomenally helpful definition, not only because it doesn't have reference to the arts, but also because it speaks to this deep-seated bias that human beings hold called the Einstelling effect. Mm -hmm. This was identified by Abraham Luchens back in 1942, subsequently validated by guys like Carl Dunker and researchers at Oxford more recently. But the basic premise, the Einstelling effect, which I refer to, by the way, as the anti-Einstein effect because of its tendency to thwart breakthrough thinking, the Einstelling effect is the demonstrated tendency of a human being to fixate on the first viable seeming solution to the exclusion of all others. And researchers at Oxford have done things like they've tracked using eye tracking software, expert chess players. Not This isn't something that just plagues novices, experts. They tell them there's a better move, look for it. And the expert says, I am. And what their eye tracking software shows is, no, they're not. They keep looking at the move that they've already decided they're going to make. And you go, well, okay, what does that have to do with HR or accounting or all the business operations? Well, everything. If you think about 
people's jobs as solving problems. When you realize the default instinct is to implement the first viable seeming solution, and by the way, there's no empirical evidence that suggests that the first solution that comes to mind is the best. In fact, the vast body of research by Dr. Dean Keith Simonson at UC Davis and other great uh, researchers leads us to believe the opposite, which is the quality of your solutions is actually a function of the quantity of solutions you generate. Mm -hmm. And so going back to the seventh graders definition of creativity, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And that's really hard to do. And it's essential if we want to be solving problems in HR or finance or legal, we've got to create mechanisms and expectations and definitions that allow us to do more than the first thing we think of. And if you think about a leader's job, you know, of drawing creativity out of their team as drawing more than the first idea they think of out of the team, well, what does a leader do? My friend Astro Teller, who runs Google X, says he always asks teams for five ideas, always. And I said, well, what's the impact of that? He goes, well, a lot of teams at X then come up with the idea they really like, and then they bring up four dummy ideas as well, because they know I'm going to ask him for five. But what Astro says is most of the time, one of the four dummy ideas is every bit as good as the idea they were going to present. And they just have no appreciation for the value of volume. And that's when we talk about idea flow, we haven't defined the term yet, but it's basically the number of novel solutions you can generate to a problem at any given time or, or within a period of time. You can measure it in a minute, in an hour, in a month, in a year. I'm largely indifferent. The point is number of ideas over time. And you go, well, I can't think of that many good ideas. I go, mm -hmm. who said anything about good? And that's really where the cognitive biases come in because we think of the concept of good. I mean, I go all over the world from Israel to Tokyo to Topeka, Kansas. And you know, people say, how do we come up with good ideas? And I always say, wrong question. The important question is, how do we come up with more ideas, mm -hmm. not good ideas? And that flip leads to way more breakthroughs. And why, look, why does this happen? I mean, one easy explanation is that people are lazy, right? You stumble on a solution and then, you know, you're ready to go. But I, I mean, I don't believe that because when you look at the people no. who are doing this, I mean, they're working really hard. In fact, they probably wind up working more, right? Because they're basically pursuing a dead end and they're, right. you know, they're beat, beating a dead horse, right? I mean, one of the analogies that you used towards the end of the book is this idea of, you know, the log jam. And it made me think about if you're making a soup in a blender, right? And you jam the stuff in the blender, right? The rotor just keeps going, right. right? Like all the stuff at the bottom, you know, you're basically just pulverizing the crap out of that. Totally. It's becoming great, like, yeah. but, but the stuff at the top's just sitting there and, and, you know, you can, you can keep that thing going for, you know, 40 hours and you're not going to get what you want. And if you just go in there with a spoon and, you know, no, but that's dislodge thing. That's it, thing, you get, you're getting people, your soup in a few won't. minutes. They won't go for 40 hours. You ask, is it because they're lazy? No. It's because they are, Ari Kruglowski, a, a psychologist, dubbed this term cognitive closure. And what Kruglowski yeah. identified as one of the most distressing phenomena we experience as human beings, psychologically distressing, is the unknown or the unresolved. Because we hate things being unresolved, that's by the way why we love stories, right? Because they're pulling us towards closure, the tension, right? The dramatic, the narrative arc is designed to reinforce our longing for closure, right? Well, how is that manifested in problem solving? We fixate on early ideas, not because they're best, but because we go, whoo, don't have to think about that anymore, <laughs> Yeah, right? And yet, you know, uh, one of my favorite studies of creativity, this is a World War II spy master, Donald McKinnon, got obsessed with this question of productive, effective creativity after the war. 
And what he did was he studied architects because he felt that there was the nice balance of, you know, form and aesthetic beauty in architecture, but then also dealing with seismic forces and gravity. It's got to work, right? So he studies, he actually surveys all living architects of the time, and he asks them, who are the most exceptional practitioners in the field? And he gets consensus among who the best are, the best of the best. And he goes and he does anthropological kind of morning, dawn till dusk, uh, ethnographic studies. And he wants to understand how do they work? What do they do? How do they make decisions, et cetera? And then he goes and studies, ostensibly he didn't tell them this, but the people who weren't on that short list. And he does the same studies and he does a compare and contrast kind of a research study. And what he finds is a couple of fascinating things. One is direct bearing on this conversation right now. The other is, I'll tell you the other, we don't have time to talk about it, but they're the most exceptional practitioners of the field of architecture were way more likely to play than their counterparts. Mm -hmm. And I'll just leave that to the side because that's like a whole other podcast. But the thing that's important to this conversation is the most exceptional practitioners in the field were far more likely to delay decisions mm -hmm. than their less exceptional counterparts. And McKinnon really dug into study, why are they delaying? How are they delaying? And what impact does that have, right? The reason they're delaying is not because they don't care. It's because they do care, right? So care actually resulted in delays, okay? If you don't care, you're procrastinating, you're stalling, right? If you do care, fight the tendency to cognitively close, okay? So why they delayed was they cared. How did they delay? People like Frank Lloyd Wright, one of the most eminent living architects of the time, would take two naps a day. Two naps, you'd go, okay, Tell me what CEO is ready to commission people to take two naps a day, right? But so that's interesting. But then what happened when they delayed? And what's fascinating is what happened when they delayed is they opened themselves up to the possibility of new input. And by delaying a decision, they actually increased the likelihood of interfacing with unexpected information. I, we actually call that in the book collisions, right? Ar after the mm -hmm. Arthur Kessler definition of creativity, yeah. that creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. And so long as you're under the tyranny of this longing for cognitive closure, you almost shut yourself off from collisions, right? Because you're just focused and you're, and you're just getting things done. But by delaying decisions, as Frank Lloyd Wright and many of the others that McKinnon studied in that, in that study did, is they actually opened themselves up to the possibility of the seemingly, as Kessler says, the seemingly unrelated. And it's those intersections that actually resulted in the breakthrough. But the people who don't delay, the challenges are definitions of productivity and efficiency. We want to be efficient, right? So we want our amount of progress to map perfectly with the amount of time we've spent on a task, right? So when we're 20% of the way through the project plan, we ought to be 20% of the way done, right? 50-50, 80-80. And what happens when you, with this productive procrastination, you could call it is, there's a period of time where your productivity far lags the line of best fit or the line of the efficient fit. And yet what's happening there, the marination, the gestation, so to speak, is actually where the creative breakthroughs come from. And that makes those of us, myself included, recovering MBA perfectionists, that makes us go crazy because we just want to know what the answer is. And we'd rather implement a suboptimal solution than admit we still don't know yet. Well, so I think there's a story at the individual level, and then there's a story at the organizational level. I mean, at the individual level, it seems that, you know, it requires some kind of enjoyment of uncertainty or some mm -hmm. kind of enjoyment around the idea generation process. Now, do you think that, I mean, do you think that you can instill this enjoyment 
or I, is this is this like a personality? These like individual differences. You know, there's people that just are temperamentally inclined to enjoy the process of not only generating but exposing themselves to all these ideas and delaying decisions. And then there's others. I mean, I remember when we had this course on design thinking uh, here at Berkeley, uh, we would run people through these learning uh, inventories and, you know, they'd be the divergent thinkers and they'd be the convergent thinkers. And, you know, we'd say, this is terrible. All the MBAs are convergent thinkers, right? Huh. But I mean, is that is that selection? Is it treatment? Like, can we get people to appreciate the joys of I don't exploration? Know. The thing is, I don't know that it's joy. I The word, as I study it, it's more like despair than joy. It's more like hopelessness, but it's the breakthrough innovators have become conditioned to not despair at the temptation to despair. Mm. They've learned to not become hopeless when all feels lost, right? Mm. And you look at, you know, Einstein's letters to Michael Besso and it's like, I've given up on the equation. And then the next day I went for a walk with my friend and I've got it. And it's like, what, right? Or in re even uh, Henri Poincaré, right? There's a reason that they say the history of innovation is the bed, the bus, and the bathtub. It's these moments where we're not really, where, where we've finally given up. I've gone home on the bus. I'm just going to take a bath. I'm going to bed, right? That the breakthroughs often come. But the person who resolves to be done by bedtime, to be done before they go to work, they're never going to break through because they're prematurely closing on a problem, right? The person who goes, you know what? We don't know yet. And I'm willing to endure a little bit of this hopeless feeling. I mean, one of my favorite short books, one of my, one of the best short books, I'm looking at my bookshelf now, I don't see it, but it's, uh, I think it's by James Webb Young. It's called A Technique for Producing Ideas. It's like 40 pages long. He's an ad, you know, one of the original Mad Men. But he talks about in this book, and I, I think he speaks about it as poignantly as anyone in writing has, that you have to exert all of your efforts towards a problem and all of your energy. And when you get absolutely hopeless and you feel as if you can't possibly go on, then go to the theater and allow your subconscious to work, right? Ogilvy talks about receiving telegrams from his subconscious, right? But the point, as Ogilvy, I love what he said. He said, most businessmen that I know are incapable of original thinking because they cannot escape the tyranny of reason. Mm -hmm. And there's what seems reasonable. There's what seems efficient, right? And then there's the unreasonable effectiveness of someone who's willing to work differently. And I think ultimately it's not a personality disposition. It's a matter of conditioning. It's a matter of expectations. It's a matter of a willingness to be uncomfortable. The reason that people prematurely close on a suboptimal idea isn't because they're lazy. It's because they're efficient. Mm -hmm. It's because they want to get done. And by the way, they've existed in a, in this like faux academic environment that always rewards having the right answer by the time the test is done, right? Pencils down and like the kid who goes, it hadn't come to me yet, gets a, gets an F, right? Well, that's not how the real world works. So we get conditioned to, to think, well, I better have the answer by this time. And if I don't, I'm going to write something down, right? And so I find, you know, as I interact, especially with high schoolers and college students and freshmen at Stanford, for example, there is a real need to give people what I call permission to deviate, permission to go beyond the kind of standard definitions of success, productivity, et cetera. And I find that stories help, right? When people realize Einstein, when he was stuck, picked up his violin, they don't feel so guilty when they pick up theirs. Because they have this mental image that like Einstein, the answers just came to him and he just sat there furiously at his notebook all the time. That's not right, right? But we propagate these myths 
by not telling different narratives about how breakthroughs happen? Well, there's a process by which individuals right, can increase their, their idea flow. And there's, there's a process by which organizations can, can increase their idea yeah. flow. And there's strong similarities, right? I mean, it's about unlocking, hey, the production of ideas. It's also about creating these collisions that, that you talk about and then have a, having a process for uh, testing and, and learning and so forth. And I guess one question would be, is there a trade-off between fostering the generation of ideas within individuals and across individuals? Well, I think that's a really insightful question. And my answer is kind of two parts. One, where do ideas take place? I believe they take place in an individual's head. And there may be moments where we're like, and by the way, the most magical kind of brainstorm moments are like, we don't even know who came up with that. And it's like, that's awesome. And that speaks to the culture of the team and the, and the psychological safety and everything. But you know what? Like when you run back the tape as Kevin Dunbar and other you know, who studied breakthrough moments, Somebody said it. And where did it come from? It came from their brain, right? Yeah. And so there, and that's not to, that's not to exalt the individual over the team. It is to say both are important, right? And an idea, it, first of all, let's define idea. We talked about definitions, right? What's an idea? As long as you think of an idea as like a tiger, it's like this inconceivably difficult thing to produce. We, you know, Jeremy's saying have ideas. That's like having tigers. How do I do it? Right? Well, they're not that intimidating, right? An idea is simply, neurologically speaking, cognitively speaking, it's a connection. Our brains don't create new material from nothing. Ex nihilo creation doesn't happen. What our brains are doing that gives us this sensation that we have started to label idea is our brains are connecting two things we already know in a novel way, in a way that we hadn't connected it before. But it's really helpful to me to learn there's actually component parts. There's conceptual building blocks to an idea, right? I'll give you an example, and every listener here can appreciate this, right? I got a friend who is trying to break into this stroller, the baby stroller market, okay? And he thinks of all places, San Francisco is a good market. And you go, what are you talking about? It's crazy. You know the hills in San Francisco? That's nuts. And he said, yeah, but I remembered that when I was a kid, my life changed forever when my dad bought me a self-propelled lawnmower. I don't even have to tell you what his business is because you know. Because your brain just did what your brain does. And every listener, goes, we had this collective hallucination called an idea. Has he thought it? Yeah, he has, right? But the point is you put things in close enough proximity, the brain just snaps them together. And everybody kind of existentially knew that there are hills in San Francisco and that there are things like self-propelled lawnmowers. No one had put them together like that, right? And the point is, when you realize that an idea is a connection between two things you know or are learning, and we can talk about interesting examples of that, Bill Bowerman gazing fondly at his wife's waffle iron to start the Nike trainer is a good example. But when you think about cognitively what's happening, then the question is, well, it's, you can almost think about our conceptual building blocks as Legos. We all bring Legos. We got a bag of Legos, right? And one of the ways that we're kind of training for creativity is we're trying on connections, just putting Lego pieces together, right? That's it. That's creativity, right? Not all of them are good. That's fine. Not all of them fit. No big deal. Then the other, the other way, of course, we think about creativity is, well, if you and I come to a meeting, we both bring a bag of Legos. And could I try some of your Legos on some of mine and put them together, right? And so, which is to say, the individual needs to be fluent and facile at attempting often unsuccessful combinations. That's one. And entertaining often unsuccessful combinations, too. And then, two, the team has to create an environment and a space where often unsuccessful combinations are rewarded and joyfully you know, accepted and entertained. 
And the environment is created where somebody feels like, you know what? I'm going to pull this Lego out of the bag. I'm going to pull this Lego out of the bag. And somebody else, instead of going, what is that Lego? They go, oh, cool. What if we tried this? You know, what if we tried this? And they're just playing. And a lot of times what happens is someone uh, out of nowhere, as it were, a new, you know, viable seeming solution appears. Well, how did it appear? It appeared as a result of an environment where one, individuals were facile and comfortable trying different combinations. And two, where interpersonally, nobody's being shut down or mocked or judged for pulling different Legos out of the bag, right? And the, the irony, I would say, just maybe like one more point. I know there's a lot there. I think as it pertains teams, the big myth of a team that's coming together is that we should all try to be creative. No individual is responsible for being creative as a kind of like as an artistic uh, definition. Every individual should instead be obvious. My friend Dan Klein, who runs the Stanford Improvisers Troupe, gave me that insight. Don't be creative, be obvious. Because what's obvious to you with your bag of Legos, so to speak, is wildly creative to me because I don't have those Legos, right? So you go, you know what makes me think of is this. And I go, well, oh, Greg's so creative. And then all I have to do is be obvious. And I go, well, you know what that makes me think of? And you go, whoa, Jeremy's so creative. Well, neither of us are being creative to ourselves. We're just, there's an environment where, we're, where we can be brave to be obvious. Right. So part of that is about, you know, the having an, an abundant uh, supply of these conceptual building blocks, right? Making sure that, you know, your yes. box is full. You got the red ones and you got the green ones and you got the small ones and the big ones and so forth. But another part of that is really making sure that the interfaces are compatible, right? That there's a way for you to at least understand those conceptual building blocks well enough so that you can see how they might fit together, right? I use this, this analogy of the, of the Lego brick all the time when I talk to corporate leaders about organizational architecture, right? And, you know, it's easy uh -huh. to understand. Tell me more. Tell me know, more. What, well, you know, how increasingly innovation is about stapling things together. And the way in which you build a company nowadays is you architect it around, you know, APIs, right? So you, you right. essentially say, oh, I got right. this, this, uh, this microservice, that microservice, and you put it together and like, oh, wow, that's a product, right? And then and then you can, you know, modify uh, totally. continuously. Totally. Uh, and, and the secret to, I think, a company like Amazon is that they have, they've taken this notion of a deployment, say, in software, and they've reduced it down to something super, super small, like just changing the color of a, of a one-click button. That's a software deployment. And so right. it increases right. geometrically the combinatorial possibilities. So if we're going to generate ideas by stapling things together, these things, if you're just stapling identical bricks together, then, you know, you just have a bigger brick, right? Mm -hmm. So, so there has to be some difference. So how can you cast a wide net so that you're not just assembling a box of identical bricks, but you're assembling bricks that bring different things to the potential solution? Yeah, that's great. So I'll try to keep in mind four things I'll share. One is collaborators. Another is, we'll call it benchmarking, not that it's benchmarking. Another is randomness. And then the last I'll say is incubation or time. Okay. And so help me remember those if I forget them as I'm prone to do. As you can tell, probably through this conversation, there's a lot of train tracks that any one of these trains could go down, right? But so first collaborators, how do you cast a broad net? Well, who are you interfacing with, right? Greg, you are a person who as you even have this podcast, you're creating the possibility of casting a very wide conceptual net. 
because you're interfacing with lots. I would say the vast majority of people, maybe outside of listening to podcasts or whatever, they're interfacing with people inside their organization. They're interfacing with their team, right? They're, there's a very, very tight knit of collaborators. And that's great for moving quickly, but it's not great for novel solution creation. And you look at a guy like, say, Ben Franklin, by the way, he's one of my heroes, who had inventions that ranged from the lightning rod and bifocals to you know, the Continental Congress and fire departments, right? You go, how did an individual who, by the way, was an author and statesman, how did he do such radically interesting? I mean, you, you put the public library system to my name. It's like, I'm good. That's a good legacy, right? And that's yeah. like one of 20 things he did, right? How did he do it? Well, what we know from history is every week for 30 years, he met with what he called his Junto, a group of like-minded tradesmen. It was a leather aprons club, right? So you wanted people who are actually doing real work and they would come together and they would talk about matters of the day. Has anyone moved to town recently who we ought to know? Has anyone's business fallen into disrepute? And for what reason? Are there advances in the sciences that would have bearing on our industries, et cetera, et cetera, right? He made time. And if you think in terms of efficiency, you go, wow, one hour out of every week or two hours out of every week to talk with people in other industries about stuff that may not be directly relevant to your business seems inefficient, right? The efficient thing to do is to say, you know what? Let's just focus on your team. Let's focus on delivering the next, you know, batch $100 bills or whatever, right? So that's one thing is the collaborators that you seek out, not just internally, but outwardly. You know, you look at a guy like Richard Feynman, Nobel Prize winning physicist. He was deliberate, he says in his, in his doctoral work, not just sitting with the physicist. He'd spent a semester sitting with the biologist to the point, by the way, that he was fluent enough in biology that Crick invited him to give a lecture at Harvard, right? And then he would sit at a semester with the philosophers because he said, if I only sit with the physicists, I'm only going to know what they know. And that's not interesting, right? So one is kind of is who you choose as your collaborators. Two is where are you looking for ideas? And most organizations, I, I said, I, I kind of, I breadcrumbed the word benchmarking because it's the wrong thing to do. Looking at what your competitors do is largely useless, right? Mm -hmm. But being thoughtful about seeking inspiration from the world. We talk about this. There are tools for this, like analogous exploration, where you go into the world looking for an insight from an, uh, a seemingly unrelated industry, right? And we tell a couple of different stories in the book. But the point is, just because you don't know how to solve a problem doesn't mean it hasn't been solved in the world yeah. more broadly. And a lot of times, if you're thoughtful about where you go looking, you stumble upon novel solutions that you never would have seen in your own industry, right? So we can talk more about that if you want. That's the second thing. The third thing was randomness, right? And randomness, I think, is actually really wonderful. And it's one of the simplest things to implement right now. I mean, George Harrison famously walking into his mother's house, right? He wants to have a song on the next Beatles album. And he says, whatever line strikes me when I open my mother's book from her shelf, I'm going to write a song about. And literally the line opens to the guitar gently weeps, right? And he had an idea for a song, right? Mm -hmm. That's like an extreme example, obviously. But what we'll tell people to do at Stanford is go on a wonder wander. It's what we call it. You got a problem in your mind. Just go on a walk around the neighborhood and entertain the possibility of connection everywhere you look. If an idea is just a connection, connect it to the Amazon truck that's passing you by. And then you see a woman pushing a stroller and you see a kid bouncing a basketball. How, what does basketball have to do with it? Is there a shot clock? Is there a penalty? You know, what does a stroller have to do with it? 
is there a way that you can convert it, right? And you just try on different connections with your problem. It's seemingly random, but the point is randomness, actually the studies suggest that the more distant the analogy, the more valuable it is in producing novel connections, right? But we have a really hard time producing distant metaphors from scratch, mm -hmm. right? Think of something that's unrelated to podcasting. You're like, uh, right? Walk around your neighborhood and you're all, like, there's a dog barking. What does that have to do with podcasting? Right? All of a sudden it just stimulates different connections, right? And then the fourth thing I mentioned, you know, when you say, how do you cast a broad enough net? All of those, by the way, the other three I mentioned are going outward. The other I would say is actually casting a net inward, so to speak. And it goes back to this idea of delaying or productive procrastination. But if you look at a kind of a psychological model of creativity, well-established model, you've got first preparation, then you've got incubation, then you've got illumination or the light bulb moment. That's where that phrase comes from. And then you've got verification, right? In our hyper-efficiency-oriented world today, Slack messages, emails, whatever, what cognitively speaking, what gets the short shrift is incubation, meaning actually just thinking about something. Mm -hmm. I love what uh, Andrew Huberman has recently mentioned on his podcast. He did a podcast about creativity, and he mentioned this protocol he calls NSDR, non-sleep deep rest. And he references how Google's CEO is a big fan of NSDR. And what NSDR is, is basically a protocol where you close your eyes and become completely still for a period of, you know, between 10 and 20 minutes, and you specifically don't move. And that is known to increase chemicals that actually create endorphins and things like that, that contribute to novel, you know, synthesis and idea formation. Well, who's got time? I mean, I joked about Frank Lloyd Wright earlier. Who's got time for NSDR? You mean besides the CEO of Google? And so all that say, when you think about casting a wide net, sometimes it's actually going within as well. I think the majority of people tend to default towards going inward. If you ask somebody to come up with an idea, you'll notice that they usually look up and to the right, accessing their memory, right? Rather than very few people have the instinct to go out into the world. And that's kind of, that's the designer superpower. And that's why I kind of foreground that. But that's not to minimize the significance of being able to go inward. But I think going inward is go, diving a lot deeper. It's scuba diving, not snorkeling. And most people want to snorkel for the quick answer where they don't have to go deep. And I would advocate, you know, scuba methods as well. Well, uh, the analogous exploration is something that I've always been a big fan of. And I try to incorporate it into my teaching. I try to sort of model it oftentimes in the classroom. I think MBAs in particular find it very uh, frustrating, right? We just want to know like what's on the test. Like right. tell us what's on the test. And it's like, no, you need to learn how to think abductively, right? Which is, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is wondering. Yeah. And looking for connections that aren't obvious. And I think that, you know, when you talk about this way of the mode of attention that people have, yes, there is this tendency to just go in and focus and be deep and pursue something and don't get distracted. But I think people toggle between that and, Another type of attention, which is one where it's not focused, but it is also not wandering in the content, in the way you're describing, but rather, you know, people will default to looking at YouTube or looking at TikTok right. or, and so, right. so people spend an awful lot of time. I mean, that's one of the people criticize people's, you know, attentional modes in today's world. We see a lot of that. And it seems like if you have, you know, a few minutes where you're not working, 
you can't last a few seconds before you, you look for some kind of distraction. And I think yeah. the, the distraction is is not productive in the way that you're describing. So, right. so what's all. the so what's the difference? I mean, you talk about in the book the difference between well, there's kind of what they call cool, cool media, hot media, right? And cool media tend to to support incubation. Hot media tend to dissipate incubation. And so things that are that require a lot of cognitive focus, like if you could choose between watching a documentary and weeding your garden, when you're trying to solve a problem, weeding your garden is probably a better way to go. Not to say that you can't be inspired by the documentary or you know that you might you might not see something that'd be very valuable. Generally speaking, a lightly distracting task is better than a thoroughly distracting task and consuming yourself with some kind of activity like that. By the way, I know many innovators, Claudia Kochka, head of innovation at Procter & Gamble, Kim Scott, the author of Radical Candor, uh, what's his name? Uh, Martin, oh, he's one of the presidents of Bell Labs. He kept thousands of tulips and he would be on his hands and knees every morning. By the way, while he was overseeing people inventing satellites and transistors and right lasers, and there is something to this lightly distracting task. The tendency to become absorbed in a media like TikTok is something you really have to jealously guard your attention. You really have to fight for, you know. I think uh, Scott Galloway has called these technologies weapons of mass distraction. And I think that's right. I think that weapons of mass distraction should be treated like weapons of mass destruction and avoided at all costs. Well, well let's move from idea generation to, to selection, right? You know, because if, if you don't have a selection process, then you'll just be overwhelmed. And I think one of the reasons why so many organizations fail to encourage idea generation is precisely because they fear that it's going to get in the way of accomplishing things. And so I remember I've done a lot of workshops, kind of like the ones that, that you do at the D school where I have executives come in and they'll say, my people don't have any ideas. They're not innovative. And so we, you know, we go through some exercises and unlock right. some of the idea generation. And then, you know, I'll, I'll hear from them a couple of weeks later and they say, what have you done? Like, you know, I'm being bombarded all the time by all these crazy ideas and I don't have time to, to get anything done. Right. So, so, you know, if you don't have a selection process, a way of winnowing these things down, then you will just get overwhelmed. Mm. So, I mean, is that the main problem? I mean, I, I think about the startup world to get back to this idea of within or across, right. You can have idea generation take place within the organization, or you can have it kind of across organizations. And mm -hmm. in, in, in the startup world, right, they've kind of got this process down, right, in a way where the, I always think of the CEO of a startup as the chief experiment officer. Yes. Right. And they're highly incentivized to have an efficient way of gathering up the information that they need to evaluate these right. ideas. Right. Right. It's brutal. I mean, it's very, very, has to be efficient. And the VCs are, are prodding them all the time to prioritize test and learn, test and learn. So how does one develop, particularly at, say, a large organization, a process for kind of weeding out the losers so you can, you can focus on the winners? Well, yeah, the, I, I think the thought even or the conceptual framing of weeding out the losers presumes that most are winners. We just can't get rid of the, of the few bad ideas, right? Mm -hmm. That's actually not the case, right? You, you got to weed out the winners, so to speak. The majority aren't good, right? Our default assumption is to think that the majority of ideas we have are good and commercially viable and successful. 
the opposite is true. And we actually, if you think about the scientific method, right, of hypothesis testing, what we're doing is we're seeking to disprove, not prove, mm -hmm. right? Most people, when they come up with an idea, they're trying to prove it's a good idea rather than, and what a scientist would do is disprove that it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. And you go, that's, I got to kind of go through mental gyrations to know exactly, wait, how? Are you trying to prove yourself right? If so, the world will um, offer up plentiful evidence for you to go down the wrong path, right? Or are you trying to prove yourself wrong, right? It's a very different practice and process. The reality is the vast majority of ideas we have should never become anything more mm -hmm. than just a thought that goes away. The question is first, as we've been discussing, how to create an environment where enough ideas emerge that the small fraction that should persist are, are actually mm -hmm. manifested, right? But then once you've realized that, then the question is, how do I select? And to your point, it shouldn't be on the basis of what do I think is a good idea? Because we there's strong evidence that suggests very few people are capable of picking their highest potential idea. Most teams can't do it. What you need to do instead is you need to commission, as you said, experiments, or I would even go farther and say a portfolio of experiments in order to learn what is worth investing in, what is worth resourcing. So doing lots of things and if an experiment is hugely expensive, that seems intimidating, right? So the key is, how can I be more scrappy? You know, entrepreneurs are resourceful. How can I be more resourceful? And here is where the instincts of the organization, we think about piloting and it's a $10 million endeavor. All of a sudden you can't afford very many $10 million yeah. experiments, right? But if you think in terms of very scrappy, rapid testing that costs $10,000, not $10 million, all of a sudden, the organization can afford to do a small handful. They can afford to commission a portfolio. And what we recommend is the portfolio of experiments in parallel actually yields much more information than the same number of experiments conducted in sequence. So doing yeah. them in parallel matters. Having ownership, thinking about like what Amazon has done with single-threaded leaders and teams, where it's somebody's job to own this and to try it and then to move on quickly is much better than having everybody's part-time job be innovating, right? But actually giving authority, autonomy, resources to quickly address the next bit of risk and then move on to further resourcing decisions is for most organizations, it's they aren't biased towards making fast decisions cheaply. You've got some great examples in the book. I mean, my favorite one was the floor mats, right? I guess it was Bridgestone that oh, had the, these floor mats. Yeah, yeah. In order to test the idea of the kind of floor mat with the sensors in it, instead of building the actual prototype, they just created a fake one and pretended like it. Well, it's it a great worked. example, right? If you think about, I mean, ultimately what the Bridgestone team was trying to do is they were trying to learn whether they should create a technology that would have a very focused measurement with a very kind of thin profile, right? The ability for a mat to measure and things like that is a really difficult engineering problem. And what they realized is if they even got into the engineering problem, they're committing themselves to an enormous outlay of resources, right? Engineering time, R&D time, et cetera, et cetera, before they ever even learned the more important thing, which was not can we pull it off technologically, but should we do it? Do people want us to do it? Mm -hmm. When you realize that the big question is actually not can we do it, but should we do it? Well, answering should we do, it's totally different, right? And in that case, what they did is they had envisioned this idea of a technology that could instantaneously kind of read your treadwear and give you predictive, preventative measures that you could take. Well, let's put the value proposition of something that would instantaneously read your treadwear. They bought bath mats, as you mentioned, at Target for $11.60. Let's put bath mats in a parking spot and one, see if anybody will pull into the spot with signage up that says it. 
if signage saying what the value proposition is doesn't lead to people parking in the spot and wanting the data, why bother figuring out how to get the data, right? So that's one thing. But then two, if they can get people into the spots and they can give them the worst case scenario, your tires are about to blow. What does somebody say? Do they go, ah, who cares? Do they, does it move the needle, right? If someone is unmoved to take action, to take preventative action in this case, Mm Then again, why bother with figuring out how to measure to the degree of specificity required to get them to the point where they will not take preventative action, right? So they were really shrewd and clever about sequencing the risks that they needed to eliminate in order to invest in this technology. And what they learned was they actually, it ended up being one of the cheapest kind of green lights, no pun intended, because the ultimate solution ended up having kind of a red light, green light system. But it ended up being one of the cheapest early investments of what ultimately became patentable technology at Bridgestone because they thought radically differently about what risks they needed to address and how quickly and cheaply they could address them. Now, how do you, I mean, if you have an organization that, that is just really resistant to ideas, it has processes in place that are discouraging of idea generation. I mean, where, where do you start to fix this? I mean, I, have, I spend a lot of time thinking about idea cultures versus complaint cultures, right? And you have organizations where if someone comes up with an idea, it's perceived as a complaint, right? Mm. You, you, have, you have some great examples in the book of, you know, when someone is alerting a manager to a potential problem, the manager views the messenger, right, as a nuisance, right? Yeah. Rather than as a potential source of improved performance. So I've been, you know, I've been in organizations, I mean, universities are <laughs> notorious for this. I've been in organizations where just nobody really nobody wants to know, right? Nobody wants to hear ideas, right? I mean, if you go to a typical administrator and say, hey, you know, I've, I've, I've got an idea for, you know, increasing revenue. I've got an idea for reducing costs. I've got an idea for improving quality. They're like, look, I'm busy. Like, go away. Right. <laughs> well, so how do you have to totally off and not, yeah. to, not to like sing Amazon's praises too much, but I do think that one of the kind of structural innovations and there's, a, there's limitations on what kinds of organizations can implement this, But if you look, they have a very, very modest max salary. I think it's something like 160K. Most any employee makes in salary. Well, a lot of people make a lot more than that, but it's because the majority of their compensation comes from long-term equity, not short-term, not divisional, long-term whole company equity, right? So if I'm an administrator only getting salary and somebody says, I got an idea, you know what I hear? Here's some more work to do, Mm -hmm. right? If I'm an administrator who has a mix of salary and long-term equity, and they say, I've got an idea, you know what I hear? Here's where I can get paid more, right? And so it's a subtle thing, but having the right incentives in place, it's hard to overstate how that changes people's attitudes towards ideas and towards cooperation and towards sharing resources and sharing information. If we can align our incentives around the long-term value that we're all seeking to create, then a lot of that turf territorialism battles tend to go away. Well, I mean, I think that's certainly true, but I think even with administrators whose objective function is to say, reduce their workload, I think sometimes if you approach them with an idea around reducing their workload, they still rebuff those ideas, right? Right. right. So, so, I mean, how much of it is incentives and, and how much of it is culture? And if you, and if you have to kind of start somewhere. Do you start with incentives? Do you start with culture? Or are those two things completely inseparable? 
Well, I think culture, I would get, I would not to harp on the notion of definitions, but what's culture? And my friend, Mary Barra, who's the CEO of GM says, culture is how we all behave. That's it, right? So if you want to change culture, what do you need to do? You need to change behaviors. And if you want to change someone's orientation towards ideas, well, change their behaviors around ideas. What does it look like to try? What does it look like to, how might we, right? There's simple, even verbal kinds of changes that you can introduce that start to pique someone's curiosity, that start to invite people into a process. You know, if you realize what we're going to do is we're not implementing something, we're seeing if something's worth implementing. And there's a playfulness, there's an inclusiveness, there's a spirit of curiosity that starts to, that can really permeate a culture, right? Including if an administrator sitting there only on the receiving end of somebody else's, you know, I was talking to a CEO of a, of a enormous sports organization yesterday, and they were telling me, everybody rolls their eyes when I come around because they say, here comes more ideas, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. That's, yeah. That's, the, yeah. That's, that's when we're the victim of ideas, right? If uh -huh. you can include people in becoming part of the solution, Mm -hmm. And you can give people the, the real, not the sense or the impression, but convey the reality that great ideas can come from anywhere and they're everybody's responsibility. And we're going to take it seriously to be pushing forward things that grow the organization's value that all of us benefit from. There are, there starts to be real cultural transformations that take place there. Yeah. And I like to say that anybody can do it. I mean, you don't have to be the CEO. So regardless of Absolutely. where you are in the organization, if you understand that the difference between an idea and a complaint is entirely in the eye of the beholder, right? And you communicate to all the people around you that you are open to receiving ideas. I, I think that, you know, you can begin some process, at least catalyze this from your starting point. Yeah. So yeah. I think that, I mean, when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, Wow, you know what every CEO needs is they need an idea flowometer. Right. Could we That's do great. this? I mean, you know, will the accountants at some point maybe put this in the financial statements? Can we take a company in and maybe even an individual in and, and give them some kind of diagnosis, like get a blood test so you can say, you know, hey, you're exposure to ideas, your capacity to generate ideas, you know, this muscle that we mm. talk about is in shape, out of shape. Right. Is there other good ways to measure and evaluate this? You know, that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, Greg. And I would say the most advanced organizations I've seen do have, you know, kind of knowledge management platforms and idea management, innovation management. Where I would say they lack is they're all ideas that people want to share. So we're already a stage step or two down the funnel, meaning where I think real work and real effort should be exerted is... Where's the generation, you know, Steve Jobs used to say to J Sir Johnny Ive all the time, hey, Johnny, you want to hear a dopey idea? And Johnny said, most of the time they were pretty dopey, right? Yeah. I have the sense that none of that, you know, Steve Jobs thought those ideas were dopey, by the way. It's not that he said, you want to hear an idea other people yeah. are going to think is dopey, right? And I have a feeling that the ideas people submit to those systems are not their dopey ideas. They're their good ideas that they think stand a chance. And right, and, but when you think about idea flow, it's not a measure of how many good ideas you can generate at any moment. That's an output metric. Yeah. It's a measure of how many ideas, period, you can generate at any moment and how many ideas are being generated. And I feel that is a, that's an area, I would call it a data desert for organizations. Some organizations have a sense for their innovation funnel and their, they have innovation prizes and awards and things like that, hackathons, et cetera. Very few organizations are making the leap 
upstream, so to speak, into the practice space, into the cultivating the instinct of generating volume before implementing. Because for most of them, their innovation pipeline is just, what are we going to do in the market? What are we going to do to deliver new products, services, et cetera? And it doesn't incorporate problems that, how do I give feedback to this underperforming employee? Well, that's a legitimate problem in need of more. We say every problem is an idea problem, right? Anything that you don't know what the right answer to, the answer is a volume of possible answers first. And insofar as those problems are candidates for the innovation funnel, let alone all of the bad ideas that are prerequisite to the good idea, to the problem that doesn't belong in the innovation funnel, then what you're measuring is just going to be, a, even if you do measure to some degree of robustness, it's going to be a very poor proxy of the variable that you actually need to be measuring. And that to me is a wonderful opportunity for innovation. It's something that I'm spending a lot of time focusing on right now. Well, one of the metrics that you talk about in the book is this idea of the idea ratio. And what I love about this is it's, in some sense, it's very counterintuitive, right? So I have a friend who's a VC here in the Valley and, you know, he's, he's, he's very, very concerned. And I'm like, why are you concerned? He's like, well, most of my investments have done fantastically, right? Hmm. I haven't really had any failures. Yeah. And I was like, well, that sounds great. And he's like, no, no, like I lose a ton of sleep at night because what it means is that I'm not taking enough risk, right? Yeah. I'm not actually out there looking at enough ideas. So, you know, when we think in marketing, we think about, you know, all these different conversion metrics. We tend to think like, oh, hey, if 90% of the people who see my ad click on it, like, that's great. That's you know, And if 90% yeah, yeah. of the people click yeah. on it, buy it, like, that's great. And I think what you're suggesting is that, hey, hold on a second, right? You know, maybe that means you're just you know, you're not advertising to enough people. Playing it super safe, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my I think we tell the story of my friend Philippe Barreau, who runs Innovation at Michelin, or he runs one of their few innovation labs. One of the things that he has implemented there is a minimum failure floor. You think there, there's a lot of organizations that have a maximum failure ceiling, yeah. right? If you fail more than this, you're fired. He has a minimum failure floor, meaning if we fail less than this, we know we're not doing our job right. If we really are trying to innovate and exploring broadly, we're going to have, we're going to rack up a bunch of failures. And I, I commend your VC friend who's staying up late, you know, losing sleep because we want a, he's in the, a VC is in the business of exploring radically broadly. And a typical mm -hmm. VC portfolio is kind of a one in 10, two in 10 success rate. And if he's having a hundred percent, I mean, it might be great financially, right? But chances are, and the reason he's staying up late is because he probably knows not that he's that he is missing investments that would return less, but by not placing investments that return less, he's probably missing investments that would be phenomenally more successful too. Mm -hmm. What keeps him up at night isn't that he's not losing more money. It's that he's probably, if he's succeeding to some high percentage, he's probably not experiencing the, it's, that's what they call it the power law, right? There's a power law return at play in the VC world and he's probably more concerned by his success rate that he's not participating in the truly big outcomes. So one last question, right? Because I'm super interested in interdisciplinary research, interdisciplinary education. You know, the whole idea of the D-School, it seems like it's inherently non-disciplinary, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and it has a peculiar place in the university, right? Yes. And so there's not a lot of universities that have a design school. Precisely for that reason, it's not really clear what it is that you're studying. And, you know, at the D school, you have people from business, you have people from healthcare, you have people from law, like anybody can come and take these classes. Is something like this, I mean, is it inevitable that the immune system of, of an organization like university is always going to be kind of 
pushing against this type of enterprise and you just have to kind of like, you know, find a little gap in, in there and, and, and get comfortable. I mean, because what would it mean to go deep and narrow in the idea of ideas? Right. Is, is that right. even possible? Well, David Kelly, the founder of the D School, tells a story about how his characterization of the of academia is each field is about going deeper and deeper and deeper. And his question was, do we want to have a side bet on going broader? Just a side bet. And for a while, it, that was, you know, fell on deaf ears or it wasn't really that interesting. And then he had an interview with Time or Business Week or something. And Hasso Plattner got a hold of the magazine and called him and said, hey, what does it take to make this side bet on going broad happen? David said, I said the biggest number I could think of, $35 million. And Hasso said, great, I'll write you a check. And then he said, when I came back to the powers that be and said, hey, this side bet on going broad, someone's willing to give us $35 million. All of a sudden, everybody thought it was a great idea. <laughs> and so it may not be, I don't know. So to what degree does that reflect that we are enlightened or lucky or blessed, right? Who knows? I do think that there are increasingly more academic institutions that are placing a side bet, so to speak, on going broad that are building the D-School-like infrastructure. But a lot of them, in my observation, have crippled themselves with burdensome, cumbersome requirements, and they've made it particularly difficult. There's one university that will I'll remain nameless that I know of that won't let faculty collaborate. Mm -hmm. At the D-School, you can't teach a class by yourself. At this mm -hmm. university, you can't teach a class together. And that's antithetical. Part of what we're trying to do is facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration. For us at the D-School, we go, the only way that we can inculcate that is if we embody it. I have to be teaching with an engineer. I'm an MBA. I got to teach with an engineer or with a dance choreographer as I do in my transformative design class, right? It's me, the MBA, a mechatronics professor, and a dance instructor. And the three of us have this wonderful interplay of perspectives, right? To then go to a university where they say, you'll be penalized if there's more than one person involved in the class. You go, well, how much do we applaud their desire to mm -hmm. facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration? And so I think there, there's a lot of variables at play there. I do think many universities are trying to do things like this. And I would love to be a resource. I know the D School broadly would love to be a resource. I personally would love to be a resource. Folks who are really sincere in their desire to facilitate interdisciplinary collaboration and breakthrough thinking in the context of their academic environment. Well, do you think that the field that is being pioneered at the D School, once it develops its own refereed journals and its own tenure track faculty members, <laughs> its own administrative committees and so forth, would at some point kind of fall prey to the, the problem that it's trying to fix in some way? Of course. I think it's certainly a risk that everybody's well aware of, everybody's trying to guard against, and but it's something that's on our minds every day. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. I think we could probably talk all day. Uh, totally. <laughs> so we'll have to continue the conversation later. But look, the book is called uh, Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Everybody check it out. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.